very excited if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. I always hesitate to put inserts into the bulletin because I'm afraid that you're going to be like me and stare at the map during the whole sermon, which I guess could be helpful for some. Um, I am going to reference the map in just a few moments. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Some of you may be wondering, what in the world are we doing looking at Deuteronomy? Many people, I believe, have serious misunderstandings about studying the books of the Old Testament, especially the the Pentateuch besides the book of Genesis. It's maybe the the attitude that the, the Old Testament really was mostly for Israel, and the New Testament is, that's for the church. Well, that's not right. It's all for the church, and the church existed back when Israel and Adam and Eve were around. Or maybe the Old Testament is law, but, you know, we live under grace. This is the New Testament church. These are false dichotomies, but they're also antithetical to Scripture, to the New Testament writers who certainly viewed all of the Scripture as important and applicable and relevant for the church today. Hebrews 1 was just a short example. It's all through the Scripture. And Deuteronomy is one of those books like the book of Romans. When I I begin to anticipate, when are we going to go to Deuteronomy? When are we going to go to Romans? I know that once we go there, I'm probably not going to get a chance to go back. I won't live long enough as we preach through the Bible. But Deuteronomy is the powerhouse of the Old Testament, the theological center. It's like the Romans of the Old Testament for God's people just as important, I believe. I'm going to give you, as just a long introduction, four reasons why you should want to study Deuteronomy, and you should want to bring your friends and family to study Deuteronomy with you on Sunday evenings. There are many, many more reasons, I'm sure. First of all, this book, like all of the Bible, is for the covenant community. It's for the church. What is the covenant community? What's the church? Well, in every age, it's always the same. It's those who are saved by God, who trust by faith in God. They are part of the covenant community. They're part of the church. And existed. this existed in Adam's day. In Galatians 3, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. He's talking of the promises to Abraham, the covenant father of all of the church. Before Abraham, they looked forward to those promises, and now we embrace them as as fulfilled by Christ. The church is the people of God. From Adam to Eve to Abel to Seth to Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus to us, all the seed of the woman as opposed to the seed of the serpent. All the seed of the woman are members of God's covenant community, the church. Why is this important when you study Deuteronomy? Because this is our book. This is for us. It's for the church. I'd also point out to you that Jesus quoted Deuteronomy when he mentioned the church in, I believe this is Matthew 18, he says, but if any, but if he does not listen, take one or two others. He's talking about someone who's offended you. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's Deuteronomy 19. But if he refuses to listen to them, what what does Jesus say? Tell it to the church. You might be wondering, who is he talking about? If you had kind of the, the modern American version of what church meant, which is everything after Jesus' resurrection, then Jesus' words make no sense. Jesus is talking about the same thing I'm talking about, the church, the people of God. He said those words before there was a New Testament church as we know it today. So the congregation of Israel, in the Old Testament, the word that's used in the Septuagint to translate that is ecclesia in the Greek, which is church. One last example of why this is our book. This is for the church. This is for God's people, including us. Paul wrote to the Corinthian Gentile Christian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And listen to what Paul says to this Gentile church. No Jews in this church that we know. Well, a few may. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the same cloud. So Paul's talking to these Gentiles, these Christians, and he says, Our fathers were all under the same cloud. They passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, Paul's understanding of the church is everyone who has faith in God has always followed the rock. And those who were in the wilderness following Moses, those were our fathers. There's a great unity in Paul's mind between Old Testament, New Testament. This is all God's word. And certainly Deuteronomy is our book. So the covenant community is the first reason. The unity of the covenant community is the first reason we study all of Scripture, especially Deuteronomy. Second reason, there's great unity in God's plan of redemption, the covenant of grace. This is one of the things that's so beautiful once you understand it in the Scriptures. We see a great unity in the Scriptures of God's purpose. It's not a dispensational understanding where God tried something and then it didn't work, and he tried something else and it didn't work, and he tried something else and it didn't work. And finally, we get to Jesus, and they rejected him. So that kind of didn't work either. No, there's great unity in the Scriptures, a unity of covenant purpose. God will have a people for himself. He will be their God. They will be his people. That theme runs from Genesis to the end of Revelation. This covenant of grace to bring people to himself, despite their sins and wickedness. And it continues through all ages until Christ returns. Here's how J.I. Packer describes this. The books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation are God's own record of the progressive unfolding of his purpose to have a people in covenant with himself here on earth. The gospel, the word of God, the reality of God cannot be properly understood until it is viewed within a covenantal frame. That's a bold statement. But I think he's right. The gospel, the word of God, and the reality of God cannot be properly understood until it's viewed within a covenantal frame. That doesn't mean you can't understand it at all. 
But you don't get the fullness of it until you see God's covenanting with his own people. This covenant of grace has been progressively revealed to God's church. Adam and Eve saw grace and forgiveness and the promise of a redeemer. We see the covenant formally established with Abraham. And God said he didn't choose Abraham because he was more numerous or better than anyone else. Why did he choose him? Because he loved him. His own people, his own descendants were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And then God sent them Moses and brought them out. They also despised and rejected Moses and God and his covenant. He was not pleased with many of them. But he preserves them and brings them to this point where they're about to enter the promised land. Because of his promises, we'll see that in this first part of Deuteronomy. Because of his promises, his covenant. Deuteronomy, if you want to think about covenant more fully, Deuteronomy is really just a covenant renewal document. We're going to talk about this. Dr. Scott Red calls it the theological core of the Old Testament. If you would think of the, the book of Romans, maybe as a theological core of the New Testament. This is the theological core of the Old Testament. We're about to study a magnificent book. They're all good. But this one is especially powerful. So this is a renewal of the covenant at Mount Sinai. All future kings are judged by this law, by this book. When the king was eventually, when David became king, when Saul became king, if you remember, Samuel gave Saul a copy of the law, of this book, of Deuteronomy. And he had to read it and keep it. This was his standard. In a way, this is our standard as well. And we'll talk about how we interprets Deuteronomy. It's almost usually very straightforward. But as we go through it, we'll see. This book is for us. The prophets, all of the prophets, we're going through the prophets in Sunday school and Sunday mornings. What are the prophets actually doing over and over and over again? They're calling the people back to the standards of this book of Deuteronomy. To covenant faithfulness. The primary job of a prophet wasn't to predict the future. It was to call the people of God back to obedience. Jesus, the author of the new covenant and the author of the old covenant, the mediator of the covenant, he makes constant reference to this covenant document, to Deuteronomy. Why? It reveals the heart of God and it reveals our duty to love him. What does the word of God teach? What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man? It's in Deuteronomy. So that's the second reason. The covenant promises and revelation that we see revealed in Deuteronomy. The third reason I think it's important to study Deuteronomy. This is God's word. We've already kind of hit on this one. It's God's word. Jesus and the New Testament writers reference Deuteronomy more than any other book except Genesis and Psalms. Deuteronomy is it. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, every one of his comebacks to Satan was from Deuteronomy. Jesus, you could say, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was preaching, some would say, Deuteronomy to the people. The Holy Spirit uses all of God's word to transform the lives of his people, and this is no exception. It's the pastor's job, I believe, to faithfully put the whole counsel of God's word before the eyes of his people, and this includes 
history and wisdom and prophets and gospels and epistles and the future books, but also the law, which we are going to study. And the last reason I believe it's so important. This is practically how to love God. It's the, the third use of the law, which is reveals the heart of God and shows us how to love him. Romans 15, 4, Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's talking about the Old Testament. It's for us. Not just how to love God, but through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You will find hope in the book of Deuteronomy. You'll see God's faithfulness and his care for his people and for us. The prophets emphasized the book of Deuteronomy and the heart worship it required. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema. This is what every Jew says, even today. This is what God required. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the law. It's loving God. You do these things because you love God. That's why we are told to circumcise our hearts, to remove the foreskin of your hearts. This is what prophets tell us again and again and again. So that's why it's so important. That's why I'm so excited. Uh, I hope you are, you're catching a little of that, the enthusiasm that I have for this wonderful book. Okay, some important details of the book itself before we look at the first eight verses. Uh, some foundational things that we just need to know. I need to cover them. I don't think we'll ever go back to these things. But before I start preaching through the book, Moses wrote the book. He wrote the first five books. He wrote Deuteronomy with a few inspired edits by later men as well, which we'll talk about when we reach them. What is the setting of the book? It's just prior to entering the promised land from the east. Okay, now please pull out your yellow map. And I'll show you where we are in this particular time when Moses is speaking these words. If you see, I'll just take you from, from big to small. You look at the very bottom of your map. There's a little town there called Elath. And that highway that moves up from Elath is called the King's Highway. So if you would go south from Elath, this is part and parcel of where the Israelites have been wandering for 40 years. So as God calls them north to the promised land, they basically go to Elath and then they follow the king's highway. And we read in Numbers about Edom and Moab not wanting them to come through their property, not wanting them to come through their land. So they finally get up into Moab if you look at Jerusalem at the top of the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is the long, narrow body of water in the middle of your map. Just to the west of that is Jerusalem. Just above Jerusalem is Bethel. And if you go toward the Jordan River, toward the east, right about there from Bethel is where Jericho is. And they are just on the other side, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, between Moab and Ammon, just waiting to cross the Jordan River. They've already conquered much of the eastern side of the Jordan River, and they're just about to enter the promised land into the western side of the Jordan River. So that's where they are. That's where they are in this particular time when Moses is speaking these words. 
what is the, the timing? It's just prior to the death of Moses. He's 120 years old. He's about to die. It's just prior to entering the promised land from the east. And it's a renewal of the covenant made at Mount Sinai for the new generation in Israel. Remember, the old generation had died. These are all the children who have grown up. So they're all between 40 and 50 years old or something like that. Because the older ones are all dying. Miriam has died recently. Aaron has died recently. And now Moses is about to die. This is a new generation and he's got to reinforce the covenant with them. So that's what Deuteronomy is. It's covenant renewal. It's making sure that what was learned with the first generation is passed on to the next. The outline of the book is amazing. I'm not going to talk about it too much tonight, but in the future um, sermons you will hear this coming out again and again. The ancient Near Eastern treaties... Caesarean treaties, as they're known, had a very specific outline and structure. We see that in the book of Deuteronomy. The treaties are always organized the same way. And God, in his good providence, took this form of treaty and basically applied it to Deuteronomy for his own people to understand. Of course, we know that in his providence, he established that form of treaty for his people to have this law in that form. But it starts with a prologue or a preamble, and that's what we're going to study today. This describes the greatness of the high king and why he needs to be served. The prologue usually continues with a history of the relationship, showing the goodness and the might and the benevolence and the care of the high king for his vassal people. This is all going to be Deuteronomy 1.1 through 4.43. Then you have stipulations of the covenant, what the vassal people must do. That's 444 through chapter 26. And the stipulations follow the format of the Ten Commandments. So there's a chapter on commandment one, chapter on commandment two, and so on. A little bit more, a little bit less for each one. All the way to 26. So you see the Ten Commandments. It's an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Then these treaties usually have blessings and curses. If you fulfill the treaty... The high king will bless you in these ways. If you mess up this treaty, if you break the covenant, then here are the curses that will come upon you. That's chapters 27 and 28. And then there's usually a way to maintain the treaty, the terms of the treaty for other generations. If you remember, there were two copies of the law given to Moses. One was for the people, one was to put in the ark. It's that kind of thing, the publishing and maintaining of this treaty, of this Covenant for future generations, that's also chapter 27. There's an oath of allegiance by the vassal, chapter 29 and 30, and witnesses to the covenant, chapter 31. So it follows the Caesarean treaty format almost perfectly, and that will come up again and again. So as we begin this text, remember, this is for Israel. It's during a very stressful and significant time in their history. They're about to go to war, and they're going to be at war for a while. But it's also for us today. Dr. Red also said the modern reader is clearly overhearing a conversation between God and a historic community. But it is a conversation that is meant to be overheard. God wants us to hear this. It's for us. So with that lengthy introduction, I'm only doing eight verses. Um, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? This is Deuteronomy chapter one. 
verses 1 through 8. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban and Hazaroth, and Dizahad. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in the commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrai. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and may God help us to understand his word. This is part of the prologue. This verse 1 through verse 8 is kind of the the high king announcing his intent, uh, his reasons for doing what he's done with his people. Um, This is the preamble, if you will, to the whole entire document, the covenant document. The high king is showing his power and causing them to remember who he is and what he's done for them. Moses uses this part of the document to show kind of the historical and redemptive backdrop for what will come, which is the theological heart of the covenant. The prologue through chapter 4, verse 43, recounts God's work for the past 40 years. He was going to go through a history, a travel log, if you will, of all that he's, he's brought his people through, starting with the Exodus, which is the pivotal moment in the history of Israel, the Exodus. Even today, if you ask uh, someone in uh, the Jewish religion or a rabbi, what is the pivotal moment of your history? They will all say the Passover and the Exodus. So it's no wonder that Moses also begins there. We'll see that after today. So this is the preamble to the document. It's kind of like the preamble to the Constitution. We the people in order to form a more perfect union, etc., etc. It doesn't actually give us law. It doesn't actually give us instruction. It just says, this is why we're doing this. It serves to establish the relationship between the parties in the document. So let us jump right into... Verses 1 through 8. In verse 1, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. Moses' words carried the authority of God. That's the first thing that we should see is Moses was the mediator for the people. And he's a foreshadowing of the final mediator who's Christ. Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him, it says. The Lord gave him the words to speak. He didn't speak for himself. He only said what Yahweh had given him to say. 
Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 12, verse 48. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken my own authority on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself. For the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is following the pattern of Moses, or Moses is following the pattern of Jesus. And this is the same pattern that all prophets and ministers of the gospel since have striven to do to proclaim God's word. Although not as perfectly as Christ, we all strive to proclaim the word of God. And just as Moses carried authority because he represented God, so... In a very real sense, the Holy Spirit, during a sermon, uses his own authority to speak through this this jar of clay, if you will. So that the sermon you're hearing is the word of God to you. It's God's voice in as much as it corresponds to his word. God speaking to you. How many times have people come up to me and said, and to every pastor, every preacher, Wow, you are, you are preaching right to my soul. I would say, no, I wasn't. It was the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you're going through exactly, but the Holy Spirit does. Here Moses said that he spoke all that the Lord had given him, all of it. He wanted the people to listen. Where did he do it? He did it beyond the Jordan, it says. And he gave us a very detailed position. In the Arabah opposite of Suf between Param and Tophel and Laban. It's the location that I basically told you just across from Jericho. He says in verse 2, it's an 11 days journey from Horeb. Horeb is another word from Mount Sinai. So he's saying it's 11 days journey from Mount Sinai where we started after crossing the Red Sea. 11 days. And verse 3 says, now in the 40th year. The people are on the east side of the Jordan. Horeb is 11 days journey, and now it's the 40th year. Listen to what Moses is telling the people. It only takes 11 days to get here. 11 days. We've been traveling 40 years. Why? Your fathers were rebellious. He's going to go into great detail about this in chapter 1 after this preamble. This 11-day journey has taken 40 years. All their fathers and mothers and grandfathers and uncles and aunts, they'd all died. That whole generation is gone. This new generation has come up, and he's saying, don't be like them. They were rebellious people. Learn from their errors. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, preached on the backside of this whole event. And this is what Stephen said. After describing the people of Israel and their wilderness wanderings and disobedience and all the prophets, he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Moses is saying, don't do that. Don't resist your father. Resist God the way your fathers did. Moses' message is turn to God in faith and repentance. It's the message of all God's ministers. 
Turn to God in faith and repentance. Don't be stiff-necked like your fathers, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Pray that God circumcises your hearts and your ears. Don't make this journey take 40 years. It's an 11-day journey. Turn to God. This could have taken 11 days. But he also immediately gives him encouragement. Right after saying on the 40th year and the first day of the 11th month, he reminds him in verse 4 that they had just recently defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. He's encouraging the people. Remember, these are people who have grown up on manna. They haven't been fighting until just recently. The fighters are all dead. They're fathers. What fear there must have been in the hearts of these people. They knew they were about to enter into more battles. And Moses is reminding them, God has been faithful to you with these first two kings and he will be faithful to you with the rest. This is a a wonderful time for Moses to remind them of these things because there really are no atheists in a foxhole. The chaplains in a military are there for a reason. No one really likes to think about it. No atheist in our government likes to think about it, but chaplains are necessary for a fighting force. I always remember um, when our unit was about to actually go into combat, and this was a country that had a very sophisticated, for the time, integrated air defense system. We thought we were all going to get shot down. And all of these men, wonderful brothers in combat, but not brothers in Christ. All of these strong-hearted men on our first combat sortie were all sitting down at the briefing. And the squadron commander knew that we should be encouraged by the chaplain. So the chaplain comes in and he picks up our briefing card, which has the names of every pilot on it for this first mission. And he said, all right, men, would you please pray with me? And we all bowed our heads. And I looked up just to see who was praying. Everyone was praying. Everyone. The prayer was actually very funny. Dear Lord, please help Bubba, help Chewy, help Mano, help Booger. You know, all the call signs were just so funny. But it just reminded me that everyone knows when it comes to life and death, you need God. This is what Moses is saying. Remember God. You're about to enter battle. Remember God. Remember him. He recently defeated Sihon and Og. These were powerful kings. Probably more powerful kings than they were going to meet on the western side of the Jordan. And God gave them great victory. Remember this. So remember the sins of your fathers, but also remember the victories of your God. Remember the goodness of God and his power. Of course, this is all kind of tied up in the gospel, isn't it? Remember the good news. Yes, you have sinned, but you have a a savior. Yes, the... The enemy is mighty, but you have a powerful commander in Jesus. But there's more. God has also given his people his word. This is in verse 5 and verse 6. He undertook to explain this law. The Lord our God, this is Yahweh, our God, Yahweh our Elohim, said to us in Horeb at Mount Sinai, you've stayed here long enough, go up and take the land. The land that God swore 
to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their offspring. So Moses, now on the east side, is about to explain the law before they enter into the promised land. That's chapters 5 through 26. He's going to explain this law. Make sure they understand it. But this is the preamble. Remember, he's just giving them an overview. So what does he say? The first words, I believe, are important and the focus. The Lord. This is Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim. So there's two names that are commonly used in the Old Testament for God. The Lord your God, when you see that phrase, is usually Yahweh and Elohim. Elohim is the God, the creator, the powerful, mighty God. But Yahweh is the covenant name. It's the the personal name between God and his covenant people. So Moses is saying, the battle should not be your focus, Yahweh. Your God, your mighty God, he's your focus. And what else? He's a God who keeps his promises. And this is the end of the preamble where he references the covenant promises for God's people. First given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were promised this land. You're about to go into this land. They were promised many offspring. You are a numerous people. So all the promises that Yahweh has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is going to fulfill them, and you're going to go do it. You are going to do it. So this is a wonderful preamble, really, to the whole rest of the book. You can see how God is using Moses to inspire his people. There's a a difficult time coming. You've already been through a very difficult time of, of wandering in the past. God is with you. Focus on God. Focus on his covenant promises. This covenant renewal document is going to be an encouragement for you in the future. So let me close with just a few points of application. Whenever we contemplate the future, many of you are are experiencing really difficult things right now. With all of its challenges, with all of the variations in the environments, with all of your own dispositions. Some of you are are naturally stronger. Some of you are naturally more fragile. Some of you are naturally healthy physically, and some of you are just naturally unhealthy. Regardless, when you look at the future, when you look ahead, You need to remember the same things that Moses has told the Israelites. First of all, don't be like the sinful people who came before you, whoever they are. Remember the sins of your fathers and don't do that. Remember the sinful person you used to be before Christ and don't be like that. And when Satan tempts you to despair, reminding you of the guilt, look to Christ. Remember in Romans 8, Paul said, if God did not withhold his only son, but gave him up for us all, how much along with that will he give us everything? Who can condemn us? Who can accuse us? Nobody. So remember your sins only so much as it turns you to the gospel, turns you to Christ. Secondly, remember your present comfort is in God and his covenant promises for you. He wins. God wins. And he will use you and your life in a powerful way. Each one of you, if you are in Christ, if you could imagine, this is a a metaphor that I love. 
If you can imagine God's redemptive work as a, as a giant tapestry, if you've ever seen pictures of these large tapestries in Europe hanging castle walls, they take years to build these things because they were done by hand one thread at a time. Every thread had to be perfectly fixed, and if it wasn't, they would pull it out and they would put the next one in. That one thread, you think wouldn't make that much difference. But if you take out one or two threads, then the thing doesn't look right. It's not right. That thread, each thread is important. And yet each thread is really just one thread in the whole perspective of that giant tapestry. Your present comfort is that God is using your life like a thread in a tapestry to accomplish his will. He's using it for a glorious purpose. All of your hurts, all of your pains, all of your suffering, all of your victory, all of your joy, and all of your, your love for God, all of it, all of the witness that you have and the light that you shine is being used by God. You might think it's a small thing, but it's an important thing, and you don't know how God is using your life to shape others, to accomplish His purpose on this earth. So that's our present comfort, is God's promise to each one of us to each one of us and to us as a church, as a a body of Christ. It's not our job to try to figure out the whole thing. People ask me this question a lot. I don't know what God's purpose is for me. I don't know what he's doing with me right now. Okay, I don't either, but wake up, serve God, read the Bible, pursue Jesus. Spend time in prayer for your family and for your church. Work hard with the skill he's given you. Shine brightly for God. Use every opportunity to talk about Jesus that you can and then go to sleep and do it again. That's God's purpose for you. It's your sanctification. So that's our present comfort is God's promises are sure. Despite the difficulties we have in life, they will be used for his glory and for our good. Finally and thirdly, We have a powerful and a personal God, just like the people of Israel. So the situation is very different for us as it was for them. But the one thing that's not different is the character of our God. He's powerful and he's personal. He's the almighty, holy God who we cannot approach apart from Christ. And yet he gathers you up in his arms like a lamb and he holds you close to his bosom. All of our situations are different, but we all have the same shepherd. And in one sense, we all have a promised land to conquer. I don't want to push this too hard. But generally, our life, just living our life, is the challenge of the promised land. Living for God. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. We're not to remain on the east side of the Jordan in fear. We're to step out, to move out as a church and personally every day for God. We're to get to work. Sometimes when we're suffering or we're under temptation or some kind of tribulation, we just want to stand or sit and not move. No, we need to live our Christian lives before the face of our holy God. And that means pursuing God and pursuing others in love. He will use the ordinary means of grace. And they're not ordinary. They're extraordinary in the sense that God, in his great providence, by his Holy Spirit, he uses the preaching of the word. He uses the fellowship of the saints. He uses the sacraments. He uses our prayers. 
to build you up in faith and holiness. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. As Moses, Moses instructed the Israelites, remember your God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this book, the Bible, and specifically the book of Deuteronomy. What a blessing it is, and I pray that you would inspire our hearts to read it, to study it, to be encouraged by it. Pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray that all of us who are weak and heavy laden would come to you and that you would give us rest. We pray that you would give us the the light burden and the easy yoke that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, for your love, and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand and sing our closing hymn, number four.